0: Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards. We had a great response to a recent episode where we heard from healthcare analyst Dr. Melissa Benson recently about how she approaches analysing publicly listed healthcare companies. So due to the interest in this sector, I thought we should speak to another fantastic Wilson's Healthcare Expert Analyst. And that's Dr. Shane Story, our guest for today. And today we're going to discuss, in particular, medtech. Before I welcome Shane, Shane has covered the Australian healthcare sector for more than a decade. Wilson's healthcare coverage is unique in its breadth across large, mid and micro cap companies. The healthcare research encompasses pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, medical devices, and healthcare service providers. And prior to joining Wilson's, Shane held roles in drug development, R&D, project management, and and even venture capital, which we're going to touch on shortly. He holds postgraduate qualifications in molecular biology, engineering, and finance, so he's well-versed to discuss today. We're very lucky to be hearing from him. Shane, welcome to the episode. Thank you Ted. It's I'm excited about being here. It's such a good show okay. and
2: the, the last one that I listened to I just wanted to be part of. it. I, I had
1: FOMO. And you're off to a good start. Now there was there's a lot in your introduction there. So let's let's start off on your PhD. So what did you do that on and why?
2: Ted, that was a long time ago. It was in biochemical engineering and I'd come from science and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew that it had something to do with maths and it had something to do with science, but I wasn't quite sure. So I ended up in, in London trying to work out ways of manufacturing and purifying little versions of a, a class of drug called antibodies. And some of your listeners will know that CSL sells you know billions of dollars worth of antibodies every year. Okay. Uh, we were trying to make little ones that could penetrate tumors and we were working with some really interesting companies at the time for whom it was new as well. So, you know, Merck and Lilly and Celtec, they were, but of course, these, those sorts of drugs now are fairly routine, Um, but that was a long time ago, but it was a lot of fun.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, you've gone from working in antibodies to working in financial services and investing and working and speaking regularly with some of Australia's largest fund managers. So Shane, maybe you could just walk us through that. What does antibody drug development have to do with investing? Absolutely nothing, but it did. But it did give me a chance to work
2: with some really interesting companies, and some really interesting investor groups. circa around the 2000 mark, just here in Australia, there was, you know, a new group of venture capital companies who were, you know, experimenting with biotech and medical devices somewhere, you know, that they could get superior returns. And so very quickly on my return home, I, I found it you know, much more interesting funding and sort of trying to finance R&D programs than doing them myself. So that was the major trick.
1: So you, you worked in venture capital for a few years too. Maybe you can just walk us through how you found that.
2: Well, like, like everything in my career so far, I had to fake it really until I made it.
1: I mean, it's much easier than what
2: I do now. I have to say, you know, because okay. in drug development, invariably, you know, you, you get a high failure rate. It's no one's fault. It's just very difficult technology to develop at times. And and I guess in a private company world, you know, you can sort of you can sort of commiserate and sort of cry about your failures in private. Whereas when they happen live on the ASX, it's very humbling. But then equally, when things go right, it's very rewarding. So I guess back in the venture capital uh, days, people used to say that, you know, they'd be happy with one, you know, major win out of 10 investments. I think in the the role that we've come to sort of play as a group, you know, here in the Australian sort of ASX listed med tech area, you know, if we could write the script for a perfect year, we'd have six or seven reasonably good outcomes and no failures would be a perfect year for us. So very different, very different kind of risk profile. But I'm glad that
1: I spent time in the ultra high octane risk part of the world to to know how scary that is. Well, Shane, I think you the, the start of your answer, you're being very humble in, in terms of your expertise and, and your depth and breadth of knowledge in this industry. So, yeah, maybe let's, let's let's focus in on what you're doing right now, and that's the healthcare sector that you look over, along with Dr. Melissa Benson and and others that we've. Well, that that research coverage just keeps on expanding. It seems maybe if you could provide listeners a bit of insight as to what it looks like right now. You're right, I started a long time
2: ago here. One of the first things I wanted to do was cover large-cap health because I'd just been hired at the precipice of the GFC and I worked out pretty quickly that you'd have to have a fair breadth of, of coverage to maintain relevance in, a, in a, what was going to become a hard market. So so we figured out pretty quickly that healthcare in Australia is a little bit like a barbell in a gym. You know, At one end, you've got a bunch of larger, very successful companies and then at the other end, you've got a, a larger bunch of smaller, promising companies and sometimes there's not a lot in the middle um, because you know they either fail or the good ones get acquired. So, so we always wanted to cover the large cap to have the stability of ResMed and CSL and Cochlear and Ramsey. The mid caps though, I'm pleased to say, are now populated with some really fantastic companies that have raised the capital and generated enough success to keep being successful rather than be acquired. And I think that's a really exciting change in the last 10 years. And of course, we'll always have a group of you know really exciting, very small early stage developers. So the only way you can really do that is to cover everything that sort of takes your interest. So we're at 27 stocks, I think at the moment. I think we'll probably have a natural limit of 25 to 30. But of course, we've got a three-person team, Melissa, you've spoken to on the
1: show. I hope that Maddie Williams makes an appearance too soon. Yes, I think it's a matter of time before we get Maddie on the show as well. Maybe before Ooh. we just move on, large cap, mid cap, small cap, micro cap, maybe if you could just for those listeners not familiar with what that actually looks like in terms of market cap. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and apologies if I,
2: you know, descend into jargon, but the large caps are really, I, I guess, you know, companies in the multi-billions of market cap, you know, so I think CSL might be 100 and. 40 or something resmeds i think 38 was was more until recently we'll talk about that sad story soon but and then you know in the mid caps that's really institutional you know bread and butter in the maybe one to three billion and then you've got the small caps which can be right you know the DJ. i think the smallest thing we cover is perhaps down to 40 or 50 million now of course beyond that there's a whole tale of very much smaller you know, companies that they have to be really exceptional for us to be able to do that. And that's really just a function of where we like to, of what our clients are interested in mainly. But yeah, there's a big swathe of healthcare opportunities there. And and we just try and choose the best, you know, 25 to 30 at any time and aren't limited by, like, it's not like we have a little quota system that have to have so many of these and so many of that. It's, it's just really what, we like to think that the 25 stocks that we're covering are just the 25 best stocks that we can see at the moment.
1: Okay and the listeners will be pleased that we're going to zoom in on some of those companies shortly but before we do healthcare is a very large industry a very large umbrella so for the a topic for today we're going to zoom in on on medical devices and as it's increasingly being known as medtech you know listeners might be familiar with fintech or proptech prop well, today we're going to touch on medtech and medical devices it's nearly Shane, half of what your team covers there so With so many, why have you decided, I assume that's by design, what is it about the medical device development in this country that you like? It's a good question. It's half by design and just half by
2: reality, and I'll explain what I mean. It might have been as high as 75% in, in, in some years in the past, because one thing I noticed about device development very early was, say, compared to drug development, which I know that you've dealt with at length with Melissa, it's perhaps not as high risk, in many ways, and it doesn't need as much capital to reach a point where the product's approved and the company can start, you know, generating revenue. So my sense is that it's just a really nice fit with the amounts of capital that tend to be available in Australia. So to give you an example, like on the funding availability side, most medical devices, many medical devices could be developed for single digit millions, say, you know, from scratch. And that's very different to say the 50 or 100 million that you might need to do a phase 3 pharmaceutical trial so you can see that the amount of capital is dramatically different people i think find medical devices easier to understand so you know one doesn't need to understand the, all the intricacies of a cochlear implant say to appreciate that it's a device that restores hearing for in a profoundly deaf patient people can intuitively see the value or understand the value in that so I suspect, from a believability and a risk profile and the availability of capital, it just seemed that yeah. I think the Australian market's a special place, you know, for the developing for the development of medical devices. In fact, you see a lot of companies come from offshore to here because uh, in international medtech, the ASX is looked upon as a place that it's a really nice place to you know to to grow little device companies when they're children before they, you know,
1: <laughs> move off and become adults. Is that because of um, Red Med, ResMed and Cochlear, their international success and, and the path that they've, they've forged? I'm
2: convinced that's true. I'm also certain that both of those companies will tell you that it was pretty hard here back, you know, 20, 30 years ago when they were just starting out. Cochlear wouldn't have happened, you know, without a federal grant. And I think the ResMed founders had to buy their technology back out from Baxter with their own money, and then had to fight to America to raise capital. So they would have had a hard time, I think, you know, back then in the, gee, I guess it would have been the early 80s, maybe. But what both of them do show us, though, is that when you do find a great medical device, you can grow that business for decades. You know, I mean, their market caps now are. I think ResMed's about 35, Cochlear's about 18 billion. But, you know, they're nowhere near done in their growth or what they want to achieve. They're really just getting started.
1: Okay. So if they've been going for decades, they're a large cap, 35, 18 billion. Why is the upside so big? I think
2: it's because we're talking about so many patients and it also takes so much time in healthcare for, for interventions to become standard of care. So maybe the Cochlear is a really interesting example because when it, began initially they were really successful in the pediatric population so children who were born profound deaf was really the first market for cochlear implants but now adults the adult population you know those who are gradually losing their hearing say from their 50s through their 60s and 70s and 80s they're the biggest market now and just recently a very prestigious group at john hopkins did the first ever trial that showed that hearing intervention halved the rate of cognitive decline in high-risk patients. So, you know, when you start to think now, here we sit in 2023, and we're hearing that hearing intervention could play a role in preventing the dementia epidemic confronting us as a society. Like, there's no way that Cochle is done. You know, there's, there's going to be a role that they'll play in that, you'd think, and you'd have to think that's worth investing in.
1: Okay. Now, another company that we've mentioned is ResMed. It'd be remiss of me not to touch on what's going on with ResMed right now. And I should put a time, sp- time stamp on this at the time of recording. It's, it's mid September and 2023. So listeners will likely be aware that ResMed have received a lot of attention because of the rise in demand for these new weight loss drugs and the potential for this to impact demand for ResMed's products. So, Shane, before we zoom in on on other parts of med tech maybe if you could just provide listeners of, you know with your thoughts on what's going on here I'm glad you asked this question this is um, a really important question
2: I think Ted uh, poor old ResMed, getting sold off you know very unfairly I think at the moment um, market probably shooting first and asking questions later if I can put it that. and way. for those
1: not aware like w- what type of drop in market cap have we seen over the last few weeks
2: oh it's been 20 30 percent yep okay you know. So 20, 30% in the stock as big as ResMed is pretty significant. I don't think I've seen a bigger correction, possibly since the, the cochlear recall, I think, which is about 12 years ago to the day, right? So that was such a good opportunity in cochlear. I think we're facing the same thing here with ResMed. But, but to your question, obviously, there's an intuitive sort of link that's being drawn between treating obesity and then in that patient, their obstructive sleep apnea symptoms, moderating or even disappearing i mean the drugs themselves i mean they are going to be massively successful they are i mean they're the sorts of drugs that people like me got into the sector in the first place for they're so clever you know but of course when we looked really hard at the science though we found that the effect there of weight loss in and of itself was incomplete so no, none of those patients were getting a complete resolution of their sleep apnea disease. And so when ResMed's CPAP therapy is properly used, it doesn't matter whether you're a severe patient or a moderate patient or a mild patient, you get, as long as you can comply with the therapy and do it properly, you know, you get a complete response. So I think that will be the thing that keeps CPAP as the first line standard of care in obstructive sleep apnea. I suspect, though, if the fat drugs, as we've come to call them, terrible yeah. word, yeah. Um, but forgive me, I can hear your listeners writing, getting picking up their pens and writing complaint letters. Oh, no. but, but the but you know the but they're not going to give us a complete solution. So our, our suspicion is that health insurers aren't going to pay for them, you know. So they won't be reimbursed. So there'll be a. There'll be a, a, an option for you know for the wealthiest sleep apnea patient who wants to become less of a sleep apnea patient who and is happy to pay the thousand dollars a month or whatever they are, but we don't see it. And besides, you know, sleep apnea is a vastly underpenetrated market. I think there's a billion people in the major markets now. and It's growing seven or eight percent a year. So I think there's plenty of patients to go around. So you know, we, we're sad for Resmed, but we're not worried about Resmed.
1: Okay. So, well, I um thanks for for pr- providing your thoughts on that. I, I think it's right now it's a very topical subject and discussion, but let's move on to other, other parts of medical device industry. Now, Shane, there are hundreds of listed and unlisted medical device opportunities out there to engage with. You've covered the sector for a very long time. So what are the key things that investors should look for in a medical device business?
2: Look, I reckon the best ones are where there's a system for reinforcing the device and how it's used. And so that might be a clinical guideline that's been written that sort of mandates the use of the device in that particular patient or for that particular application. We we'll talked to some examples in that. We It might be a, a lack of other treatment alternatives. So, you know, where you've got a vast sort of untreated population that suddenly have a solution. So I think that's also, you know, a really compelling situation. It, it might be a financial incentive where the use of the device Say in a clinical practice leads to massive savings elsewhere, and how that practice operates. So you're always looking for a, you know, a virtuous kind of circle of, of benefit wherever, or every, if not everyone, more people win than not. So when you have a, that virtuous circle where everyone's kind of winning, but the patient wins, the doctor wins, the practice that they work for wins, the health insurer wins. If you can get on one of those, you're usually on a winner. So I mean that's the first thing we look for, but then I think also it helps to helps to have preferences and helps to I think it helps to know what you're good at and what you like. So obviously hearing and breathing have been very important for me, but you know I guess yeah cardiovascular has always been a, a great area for us. Whereas we've conversely we've struggled in other areas like molecular like diagnostics. We very rarely have had got anything right there. Unfortunately, found it very difficult. You know usually a competitor will pop up out of nowhere with a better gizmo or a a regulator will come up with a decision that we didn't anticipate we've had a a hard time in molecular diagnostics over the years but you know had terrific success in cardiovascular so it comes down to yeah picking areas that you like
1: now Shane there was a question that I asked Melissa and that was a question about what they use in mining with the LaSonne curve and for those not familiar that's the chart that shows the value creation process at different stages of the mining process so I thought it's It's quite relevant to medical devices where a lot of these companies that you're analyzing are actually in the development stage. And the share price of developing of mining companies often ramps up, but we don't see that ramp up in share price when mining companies move into production. In fact, for some sometimes, the stock value may have actually come off during this phase. So You've already mentioned, actually, a couple of different milestones with your previous answer. In your experience, is there one key phase that often is the catalyst to, to move share prices around in healthcare to medical devices?
2: You, you're right. You always do see, to a certain extent, that sort of build up into a key catalyst. You always see that. And then you're right. You often see it sold off when they're faced with the you know the, the frank reality of then having to go and sell it, with which ultimately is the hard part, right? In medical device though it goes back to what i was saying about you know the investment in medtech you know being very suitable to you know to the investment temperament here in australia australians don't like binary outcomes it turns out that's what that's one of the key learnings over the last 15 years and you know the binary outcome that you have in a drug development project is so acute because the downside is mean means the entire thing's failed you know so the the key difference in medtech is that it's very unusual to see something absolutely irrevocably fail. So usually something's not quite right and the company has another go at it. So the product can be redesigned. It can be refocused on a different patient group. The company can generally get up, dust themselves off, make changes and continue. So your risk of the investment going to zero is often very low. And so it's a different risk return profile of course and again and i think australian investors over the last 10 to 15 years have have flocked to medtech because it's not as it's not as risky as as drug development and then when when products do get approved then you sort of learn really quickly about whether it's any good because you can start to see you get an immediate read on sales traction and then if you see traction that generally begets traction And you'll see companies set up that regular cadence of growing, you know, 15 to 20% and they'll do it for 20 years. So yeah, it it comes back to the risk profile and the Australian environment, you know, just being a a great place for medtech investing.
1: Fascinating. So let's move slightly. We have a a mega trend playing out right now of the aging and expanding population in Australia and around the world, which I assume creates a, a big opportunity. So how does the medical device industry, you know, look at this mega trend playing out? Yeah, more
2: cleverly than they did maybe five, 10 years ago
1: when uh, everyone was going
2: to have a wearable for everything and we were going to wear so many trinkets, you know, that we were probably just going to rattle. It's changed now. I think it's a much cleverer idea. I think the best answer the device has to those sorts of questions is on the disease prevention side. And that generally means monitoring for early signs of disease so that they can be avoided. That generally means annuity revenue streams and often now means software streams uh, of revenue. So I'd say impedimed, IPD, probably our best example of that. And it comes from the field of breast cancer, where treatment, whether that be surgery, radiation, even chemotherapy, can lead to a complication called lymphedema. And that's an irreversible disfiguring condition. It manifests as a swollen limb, so the arm. And and Petamed sells a device that looks a lot like a weight scale. Patient stands on it. But what it's measuring is fluid. And it's measuring the earliest possible signs of the, the development of lymphedema. It measures it early enough so that the, the therapist can intervene and help that patient completely avoid it. So it's, it's just one of those stories where everyone wins. You know, the patient wins. Lymphedema is the number one. Complication that breast cancer survivors fear. The doctor wins. It eliminates the from their practice. The practice they work for wins because they're not up for the costs of treating the, you know, the consequence of their treatment. Uh, even the health insurer wins. You know, so most of the revenue here with impedimed is software driven. So they sell the device, but they charge a software license fee to the provider and. It's very high margin, so it's one of those early detection, early intervention stories that I think, you know, really win when you know, when we talk about ageing population and how medical device can help.
1: And for those not familiar with the the impediment story, how old's this business? How how long's it been going for? Oh gee, a long time. Uh, it listed
2: back in two thousand and seven, I think, and it took ten years of more, of very hard, very long, complicated clinical trials to prove. To everyone, that a lymphedema was a problem. Lymphedema used to be something that was swept under the rug, in a way, ignored. And to prove that it was an issue, and to prove that you know their technology could do what it said to, it does, and they did that. They they had a really long 1,200 patient randomized controlled trial that showed just so emphatically that you know it it caught all the lymphedema early after after surgery and even caught it late, you know, 18 months, two years later and could reliably tell, you know, lymphedema from, you know, just normal sort of weight gain, say, could differentiate and really see, very hone in very specifically and see that it was measuring them for DEMA. But it took them years. And and then, you know, years more to to convince the clinical guidelines people that this should be standard of care. But they've won, you know, they've won the standard of care now. So so now it's very exciting and very rewarding to see them finally get there.
1: Yeah, and they're providing you know, great outcomes for clients. And what's it look like for the investors right now? What's the market cap? Yeah, market cap's be- around the-
2: 300 300 to 400 million odd so you know we we would call that a, a small to mid cap and and because it's been around for so long and it's raised capital along the way of course so it's got a very liquid sort of you know registered lots of good shareholders there and the revenue opportunity is well you know we've worked out that it could be anywhere between 150 and 300 million in revenue from breast cancer alone and you know without you know Waxing too lyrical. Not only did they get breast cancer from the insurers, they are now getting the use for all cancers. You know, so it's yeah, it's 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 a it's been a very rewarding one to cover, I have to say, and because you know people threw cabbages a poor impediment for so long. It's it's so good to see them
1: finally win. So. And obviously, what impediment have there is is a patent that they're monetizing <laughs> after investing. So maybe if you could just walk us through how the differences between patents for say drugs compared to devices.
2: This is a really good question, you know, because I mean, of course, they're really important to have that sort of form of intellectual property, but but in medical device, you get to have other forms of intellectual property that are perhaps even more powerful. And here I talk about, here I mean, algorithms that might be embedded, say, in the software that, okay, you could have someone try and reverse engineer and try and work out how it it all works, but it's something that you would never publish in a patent. Right, but but nonetheless, it's internal, it's like trade secret almost, if I can put it that way. Impedimed certainly has that. On the trade secret front, another example: Fisher and Paykel Healthcare in New Zealand. I've been aware of groups for years and years and years trying to replicate what they've got in their high flow oxygen treatment. No one can do it. They're the only people who can do it. There's some secret that they've got that no one else has been able to crack, and then. The other form of protection which is usually very powerful and you only really see in medical device is that of the safety record. Because particularly when we talk about, you know, quite invasive things like a cardiac device or a cochlear implant again. So cochlear's reliability and safety record is why it's, you know, retained 65% market share globally. It's just a trusted brand. That's why, you know, small would-be adversaries typically don't get any traction because why would you, you know, why would you risk going with someone who doesn't have that 30 year track record of safety? So that can, that can develop to be a very powerful thing for you as a, as a medical device company.
1: Shane, let's look at some more success stories on the ASX. Maybe if you could, maybe if we could speak about nanosonics first, tell us about that business and how it's played out so far. Well we listed that business here at Wilson's even before I was here which
2: gives you a sense of how long it's been around. <laughs> so but you know it's one of those device stories where you know you're first to solve a problem that's been really nagging at healthcare providers and they didn't really know how much of a problem it was until you know the, the noses were rubbed in it in a sense but but it's how you become standard of care again you know and how you help almost to write you know, a new rule book about how things are done. So what they do is they saw that there was a growing number of medical devices out there that were too complex, too expensive, too fragile to ever be properly sterilized. They were way too expensive to be disposed of, so they have to be used on multiple patients. But how do you clean them, you know, between patient uses, right? So you couldn't sterilize them. So you can't put them in an autoclave. You can't put them in 121 degrees and three atmospheres of pressure. You can't do it because you'll destroy the thing. So they came up with, so they focused on ultrasound. And so that's a procedure we've all had. We're all familiar with the handheld, you know, ultrasound transducers that you, know, you have in the physio or in obstetrics. Yep. And so prior to nanosonics those things were cleaned by dunking them in a bucket of glutaraldehyde and no one liked it it was a hazardous chemical disinfectant the practitioners hated it um, probably didn't use it properly and so sensing that that you know would lead to transmissions of infections nanosonics came up with a a unit that cleans it 7 minutes only produces carbon dioxide and water as the only byproducts really efficient and then they introduced that into the American market, the infection preventionist community, who are the gatekeepers of how things are cleaned and sterilized in hospitals. They just fell in love with it, and they started almost, you know, recommending it to the hospitals that they were, you know, auditing. And the rest is history. There's over 30,000 of them out there in the market now, and they, and they generate annuity revenue of consumables and servicing, and it's just a lovely, you know, consumables hardware type medical device business now and you're about to move into endoscope. So it's it's been a, a really good one.
1: So is the value in nanosonics more for the disinfecting machine that's probably bought up front or the fact that it needs the annuities, the uh, possible oh, recurring the... disinfecting car- cartridges? <laughs> whatever. It's like the
2: Nespresso of, of healthcare. <laughs> you're selling the pods, mate, you know, all the money's in the pods. So, and the pods, of course, we trivialise them, but the The consumable is an FDA-approved device in its own right, with its own patent protection, its own everything, right? So, but nonetheless, it's if you've got an install base of thirty-something thousand of these things, and they're developing revenue of I think it's between three and four thousand dollars each. You know, it adds up, and of course, it's sticky and it can't be replicated, and no one will replace it, and they've had almost no pushback on pricing. So, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a fabulous investment.
1: Well, that, that's fascinating to hear about that. Let's look at a company maybe a bit earlier on in their journey than Nanosonic, and possibly you know with aspirations to win market share all around the world. But What's a good company to to look at? For the- it's EBR Systems. It's possibly the best medical device I reckon I've seen in the last in the last decade, uh, and
2: I think it'll change the way people are treated with heart failure. So let's talk about it. So, um, heart failure. People talk about it being an epidemic, and they're right. And It's the first stock I ever covered as an analyst was in heart failure. And back in 2008, I remember being stunned to learn that there were 5 million people in the USA who had heart failure. And then I didn't really get to recheck that number until 2021, when I started to do the research on EBR. And I learned that that had climbed to 6.5 million, and is probably on its way to 10. And the driver of that, I think, is that we're so much better at treating patients who've had heart attacks, because of course, maybe in the 50s or 60s or 70s, a lot more of those people would die of a heart attack. Now, of course, now that the mortality isn't there, we're having to cope with the longer term consequences of the damage that those heart attacks did five, 10, 15 years ago, and one of which of course is heart failure. So um, traditionally, pacing and what i mean by pacing is where people will be familiar with the term pacemaker and what that really does it's a device that has historically been a a wire lead that runs from a power supply and you might have seen people with little implants under their collarbone and anyway that's that device that lead goes into the heart and basically provides an electrical signal for the heart to, to beat and make sure that it's beating at the right rate right so when a patient has heart failure they need both sides of their heart need help, that kind of help. And historically it's been impossible to do that inside the left side of the heart for various reasons. One being, you know, very high stroke risk. So, so much so that none of the big device companies like uh, Medtronic or like Boston Scientific or Abbott dared to go there, wouldn't dare. EBR solved it by um, not tying themselves to having a battery in so- for the device inside the heart, right? So what they came up with was this tiny little device that sits inside the left side of the heart and it converts ultrasound energy to electrical energy. So it gets away without having a battery. And by doing that, you can provide a really physiologically authentic signal to the left side of the heart and get it beating so what they did in their trial was they took patients who couldn't be treated using conventional methods and they gave them this device instead and what they found was that those patients who would have been otherwise turned away from treatment got the therapy benefit that they would have otherwise expected from conventional therapy so you've and this is maybe 40% of patients who today don't have a solution, but whereas at this time next year might. So they're, we're expecting them to sort of get approval from FDA next year. And we worked out that every year there's enough patients to fill the Sydney Cricket Ground. So just shy of 50,000 patients in America who currently don't get treated might. And at $35,000 a device, that adds up. So you can see why we like ebr so much ted
1: yes i do well shane that's been absolutely fascinating to to hear about ebr and and for that matter impedimed nanosonics resmed cochlear and the others but in the interest of time we should wrap it up there if you're interested in anything discussed in today's podcast episode then please speak with your wilson's advisor and wilson's clients also have access to shane's great research in the client portal too and for those not currently a client you can request a call from a Wilson's advisor through the Wilson's website, wilson'sadvisory.com.au. Shane, thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. MedTech, it's, it's a fascinating and exciting area. So I think we need to do this again. Thanks very much. My name's Ted Richards, and you've been listening to the Invest It Best podcast.
0: This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.